Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Thanks for being here today. We are glad that you're here today. We are continuing in the book of Colossians together, and I'm glad you're here this morning as we continue this. And uh, this, I just... I want to kind of set the tone for this and kind of set the kind of the trajectory for this. And as it relates to this, I had this thought this week, as it relates to today's scripture text and as it relates to God's word, as it relates to this, the one word that I really want to just encapsulate with this and engulf this, these few verses today, and that word is just relationships. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, when I lean into that word, I, it pulls and draws me in. And today's text centers around relationships. As we walk through this text today, as we walk in this and through this, uh, I just want us to remember the broader perspective of relationships this morning. Very practical and informative and gives us good perspective as we look at relationships, how to live this out. And so um, kind of a theme verse as we have walked through the book of Colossians has been chapter 1, verse 18. It'll serve, continue today to serve as a springboard for us as we just launch into this discussion, as we launch into this text today and God's word. And Colossians 1.18 reminds us of this. And although he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything that he might have the supremacy. And so even, so even at the beginning, when sin entered the world, it separated us from God. Sin entered the world, and it separated us from a life with God. And then Adam and Eve, they bit the, they bit the fruit, and it separated us from that. We were separated, completely cut off from a life of God. And then Jesus comes, and he becomes for us what we could not do, and we were separated from this, and Jesus becomes for us what we could not do. And God in Christ is getting his rightful place in Christ as the supreme object of our lives. Colossians is all about giving Christ his full measure and full treasure for our lives and having him be the supreme object of our lives. And it changes everything about us. And the book of Colossians tells us this, that when we focus on Jesus, when we focus on Christ, it changes everything for us and through us, and the book of Colossians tells us as even these relationships today as we talk about it. So, book of Colossians, 10,000 foot view, and Paul is writing this letter to this young church, and Paul is the, the guy who wrote this. He dramatically found Jesus on a road, and, and he's had this dramatic conversion to Christianity, and he begins this, he writes this, he pens this to the book of Colossians, and he writes this letter to combat some false teaching, but to also show this young church to Christians in Colossians about what it all means to follow Jesus and what it means to have Jesus as a supreme authority and figure in our lives. And so this is packed with purpose. Chapters 1 and 2 are very dense. Chapters 3 and 4 are practical. Okay, how does this be lived out and all that Christ is and all that Christ has done? So the latter half is very practical in its doing. And so this is what it looks like to have Christ be in the center of our homes, be in the center of our relationships. And so this is what it looks like even in this text. So um, as we look at this, I just want to kind of remind us from last week, okay, as we kind of walk into this, 
I just kind of want to set us up even from a few verses from what we talked about last week because it'll serve us really, really well. And when we read letters and even when you read the Bible, it's helpful to even read the context around them to kind of show us, to give us kind of a mind to kind of go into the text even into the verses after that. So we, we said this last week, that chapter 3 in the book of Colossians is sort of a shift, and it shifts its way in its thinking, and he shifts its kind of his thought in his thinking. Paul gives this letter to the Colossians, and we said this about last week, that change is an inside-out work of God. Change is not passive, but it is intentional, and change is a relational work of the church. And notice that, there, that therefore, we talked about that therefore clause, since then or therefore, whatever your translations have that, this is, it's like Paul is saying, okay, in light of Jesus, in light of this new reality, this is how you ought to live and should live. Put on these clothes, as Paul says in this, put on these clothes, put on as God's chosen people, clothes yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And so we can read those and we'll read those here and uh, bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against with someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And Kent Hughes, I just want to remind us of this quote. He says, one other fact about this wardrobe, as God's chosen people, we put on, we clothe ourselves with these qualities. All these garments can only be worn in community with others in relationships. How tempting to think that these garments would be so much easier to wear if we did not have to wear them among people. How much easier to think, how much easier to think about compassion than to do it. How much easier to be kind when we are away from mean people. It would be far easier to put on humility and meekness if we were not being jostled by the proud and the assertive. How much easier patience is in isolation. But that's not the way it works. And Kent Hughes goes on, he says, Christians become better Christians in community, in their families, among their associates, in their dorms, in their churches, where there is sweat and breath. <laughs> and the truth is that the very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments are the things that make possible their wearing. Put on is a present imperative. Put them on and keep putting on these clothes. We often resonate, and we said this, this parable this last week's, we often resonate with this, to live with the saints we love, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Church, we are meant to be together. We are meant to do life together. And that's the way Jesus designed his church. So as we discover this today, we will continue to emphasize, we will continue to set our gaze on Jesus, and we will set our mind, we will set our heart on the risen Christ and upon him, and might Jesus and all that we do, we might display his glory, and as might we, as even the picture of Christ as the head, supreme head over every power and authority, that that guides our decisions and guides our relationships. And everything we do, everything we do has Christ. If we are in Christ, everything we do including relationships, including decisions that we make, is because Jesus Christ is the head and Jesus Christ is the supreme over all things. And it overflows into the world around us. So I want to read verses 15 to 17. I just want to set our heart and our mind as we go into verse 18. And a bit of the surrounding context is helpful as we read Paul's letters or any of the book of the Bible today. So if you have your Bible, you can go to Colossians 3. Forgive me, I forgot the page number. So Colossians 3, verse 15, if you have the Bible in front of you, you want to grab it and open up 
It's going to be on the screen behind me as well, but it's Colossians 3. If you open up the Bible like almost to the end, you'll find kind of some small letters and then you'll probably round up somewhere on the book of Colossians. So let's go to verse 15 and it says this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of who? The Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, now he's talking to the, the church in Colossians here, and you may be thinking like, yeah, right. Like that's a nice thought, right? <laughs> that's a nice thought. Yeah, right, right? Like you might be thinking, man, getting four people in a room is hard. And you're like, but getting a hundred people in a room is different backgrounds, ideas, and stories, different opinions. Like how do you make peace? How do you call this peace, right? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Uh, but a hundred people, I mean, if you think about it, like me, you might identify with this quote. You might identify with this kind of saying. You might say, we have a love-hate relationship with relationships. <laughs> um, community life is a necessary and a glorious privilege. And the problem is sometimes we approach church with a certain set of ideals and expectations that put ourselves at the center rather than Jesus Christ and what he has to say and in the community together. So let me read verses 18 through, verse, verse, verses, through chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your what? Heart, as working for the Lord, not for masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus, the Lord Christ, you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And it says in verse 1, it's important, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. So, and then all of a sudden, as a communicator, I can feel our anticipation turn up as I read those verses and a little bit of angst as I read those and read God's word. And so as I was preparing for this, you sort of read that and you're like, well, where is he going to go with this? What does this look like, even practically speaking, for this and for what it looks like to witness to Jesus and to have Christ over all things, and what does it look like relationally? And uh, some of you maybe were like, Landon, I was just beginning to like you. <laughs> and some of you are like, uh, Stuart, this is determining whether I will ever speak to you ever again. Um, so, uh, so this is this. Some of you are like, it's about time, Stuart. And then uh, some, was just let's acknowledge that. My wife is wondering if she would be thinking if maybe during the closing song or whatever, with every high be, eye bowed and head closed, she could slip out on this. Um, so I don't think so. Um, but I'm serious. How do we think about these subjects, right? How do we read this? How do we how do we look at this, right? Are we going to skirt by them? Should we do that? Um, or is there anything for us today in the world around us 
to think about this in the culture, in the lives, in the areas in which we live. Does this mean anything for me on Monday? Does this look, what does this look like on Monday, Wednesday? What does this look like? I just want to kind of wrap this up for just a minute here in this big idea, okay? This is the entire, this entirety of the message today is this. This main idea today is because of Christ's greatness, all aspects of life, family, job, and everything in between must be governed by and lived for the glory of Jesus. This whole book is about the supremacy of Christ, the power of Christ. This whole section is about how glorious and supreme and how glorious Jesus is. And the rest of the book is practically how do you live this out? How do you look at this? What does it look like? The Bible's written in a time and place, and it also speaks to us very clearly today. So as the truth is Christians, how do we not let any area of our lives be uncovered and be integrated? How do we look at this with the supremacy of Jesus and the supremacy of Christ over all things? So it does take a little bit of work and it takes a little bit of work knowing the culture of Colossians, okay? So there's a lot for us here in this cultural moment in the book of Colossians. Now to start off and to understand a little bit about this, we start with Caesar Augustus. He came to power about 29 AD, and the Roman Empire was in shambles, shambles due to civil war, and he rose to power, and he asked the Roman Empire for complete allegiance, the Roman people for complete allegiance, because if they did, he would give them two things. He would give them prosperity, and he would give them security, which is what they were really, really hoping for. And due to some military victories, numerous military victories, he just brought, he almost, he just about brought it. And he saw that there was this one thing to truly unify the Roman Empire. And so springboarding off the teachings of Aristotle, he began to speak to and then put policies in place for the Roman family. Now, this is what kind of the Roman family in those days would have looked like. Um, back then, it wasn't about, it wasn't two and a half kids in an SUV. It was a little bit more than that. They had, uh, it was a big deal because the father of the family was the pantra, and then the mother, and then there was children, and then there were often multiple slaves in the family. And when one house, so this is when one household sort of in this family, and Caesar said that the pantra of the family had this undisputed, never questioned authority and power in the household. And what he was to say was to never be questioned, and he owned everything. And the wife didn't have rights. She was to bury children and to make them look good. And it, often, if he ever gotten displeased with her, he could di- displace her at a moment's Notice, this was the culture, the Roman culture of that day. And some scholars said that if the child kind of fell out of good graces with the pantra, he could simply just kind of write off the child. And it was, they didn't have any rights. There wasn't any social protection. And uh, they were, people were considered, and slaves were considered inferior, inferior in that day. They didn't have any protection. And they didn't have any rights or protection, could be killed in a moment's Notice, And so this was kind of the Roman culture, the Roman kind of ruling of that day, and so even the Roman culture. And there were six class systems. There was the husband and wife. There was the father and the children. There was a master and the slave, all tied together by ultimately power, the ultimately powerful and the powerless. And Paul speaks directly to that system, that culture of the day, and he turns it on its head. And speaks to something very, very counterculture. And he says, now there is something now more important to your life, to those set of Christians in that church. 
in Colossians. There is something more important in that class system that defines that how are you going to relate with each other as if you are in Christ, if Lord over your life, if the Lord is absolute supreme and supremacy of Jesus and he's Lord over your life, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to live differently than the culture around you. This is the ultimate reality of all your relationships and it works its way out in this. And this is all of life, whether family or work, whether significant or mundane, is subject to and governed by, and we are to live for the glory of Jesus. And so we're going to continue to talk about this. But we find a a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5, written by Paul. It says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All of this under the submission and rule and authority of Christ. We submit and love one another because of what Christ has done. And what did Christ do? Christ came, he died. He died for us. Jesus is Lord because of the self-giving love of Christ. We love our wives because Jesus is Lord. In the context of marriage, we love our wives because Jesus is Lord. And in that, did you notice that? Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Well, what did Christ do for the church? He gave his life. He sacrificed himself on the cross. That is the highest possible calling, to love and to sacrificially love. And Jesus did that. You know, Christian husbands not to exert, this is the highest possible authority. Christian husbands, we are not to exert our authority and demand submission from their, our wives and all of us here. We call ourselves that. We are to love them sacrificially, even if it means the crucifixion of our own desires. C.S. Lewis, he described headship as this, the headship as most fully embodied, not in the husband we all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him. And you notice back in Colossians, let me just, I just kind of want to kind of emphasize this. When wives are called to submit to husbands, it says, as it is fitting in, in the Lord, not to Rome, but as is fitting to the, war, to, to the Lord. Not to Rome, not in the way that that society would have been, but to the Lord. Wives, the submission piece is willingly placing yourself under another for the sake of a specific goal, and it's under the authority, all of this context is under the authority of Christ in a Christ-centered relationship in a Christ-centered marriage. And there's actually seven other places. This is not the only place where we're called to submit as Christians. There are seven other places in the New Testament we're called to submit. We are to have, even as Christians, church, we are to all have a disposition of submission. What does that mean? And that rhymed. I didn't mean it to, but here we are. Disposition of submission. Here's the first one. Wives and husbands... Second one, we'll, the text to children and parents. Hebrews 13, as we are, talks about how we're to submit to church authority. Romans 13, that we are submitting to the authority of the state. Ephesians chapter 5 calls us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we have this disposition. When we follow Jesus, we are placing ourselves as a follower of Christ. You are placing yourself as, a, as submitting to Jesus to allow him to, we are allowing him to, to lead us. And we're submitting to his lordship 
to bring about his promises and his desires, and he exalts us in due time. And it's very important to know about those seven places that Christ calls us as a Christian community to embrace submission. Here's what this submission word does not mean. And please hear me. And I know there's this tendency to let our minds run wild with this. But as your pastor, I'm going to say, hear me clearly. There's a tendency to think in these terms with this, this, it means inferiority. Submission does not mean inferiority, nor does it mean the wife can't have any say, nor does it mean the wife can't express his or her opinion or to have any type of creative desires. Submission is the embodiment of the attitude and actions of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an inclination to affirm and embrace her husband's leadership. And men, this is a high calling. This is a high calling. Husbands, it's a high calling. We submit, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We love our wives because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love, self-giving love that only comes from the person of Jesus Christ. A laying down kind of love, a laying down kind of love for the spouse. It does not mean superiority. It does not mean superior in meaning in terms of being better than. It is not a call for husbands to become self-exalted or to make ourselves look better, but it is a call to a being a leader in the home. And our minds have a tendency to run a little bit wild with this, and, and I just want to kind of, kind of set that tone there. And so sometimes we assume that the wife needs to have some certain personality traits to being submissive. There are no descriptive personality traits for the husband or the wife. This is not a call for a wife to never to give constructive criticism to her husband. And in fact, it's actually a call. It's actually a call to honestly give her husband that criticism so that he can lead and shepherd well. It does not mean that your wife can't teach you anything. In fact, I've learned more from my wife than any other person on the planet. This is a call for husbands to be decisive, God-honoring, God-fearing men, and to lead our families well and to model Christ-likeness in the home. Men, this is, is, husbands, this is a responsibility we must carry. This is a more responsibility. And hear me, this is also, and please hear me clearly when I say this, this is not a call to continue. It is absolutely wicked. If it's not this way, it, it is not a call to continue in an abusive or coercive relationship. That's unacceptable. There are different roles in the context of marriage, but with all of equal dignity and respect for one another. And if you think of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are all three. They are all of the Trinity. They have this hierarchy and this Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yet they are all equals. And orthodoxy teaches that the Son is simultaneously equal to the Father and submissive to Him. They're all submitting to each other. And equal and and submissiveness can coexist in human relationships, including the marriage relationship. So husbands, we need to lead our families. We need to love boldly. Pray for our families, pray for our marriages, show love and grace to our children, and we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. This is all about representing Christ well in our homes. And a godly man is one who will pray and be on his knees, praying for his wife and kids, and leads his family well out of that paradigm. 
A godly man will respect the decisions of his wife, will listen well, will affirm her and firm firm her in her giftings, attend to her needs in every way. That is what a husband does. And a godly wife will pray for her husband and love him well and respect him and affirm him in his giftings. And as one author noted, that submission and love go together. To love as Christ does. To love as Christ loves. It is absurd for a Christian husband to demand submission of his wife if he is not radically loving her. Likewise, it's errant logic for a wife who is not submissive to demand such love. They go hand in hand. They coexist together. These brief words give us the pattern for fullness in Christian marriage. Full love, full commitment, full exchange, and full blessing. And I can think of no greater way then a man of God might lead his family well by bowing his knees before the Father, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, leading his family in faith, and leading from that paradigm. I can think of no other greater witness, husbands and, and wives as well, but husbands, we can think of no other greater paradigm than being on our knees and praying for our families and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, J.D. Greer, he is a pastor. Many of you heard him on the radio. You've probably heard of him before on the radio, and uh, he talked about this, He's a, and, and many of you have heard him. He says this about this. I thought this was good. He says this, Husbands, whatever power you have in the relationship should be used to honor and serve your wife, not exploit her. Live with her in an understanding way. If she's emotionally wired differently than you, don't despise that. Seek to understand her. Learn her love language. Love her on her terms. It is absolutely wicked when a man uses his physical power to dominate his wife. Even worse is when he uses the Christian idea of submission in marriage to dominate her. That is not what Christ did with his power. It is not what Christ did with his power. He used his power to serve. He laid down his life. You use the leadership you have to serve your wife. In every decision you ask this, how can I honor her, lift her up, and bless her? A man's leadership in marriage is not a license to do what he wants to do, but empowerment to do what he ought to do. So as we move into these others, other relationships here at, at, at play in, in the Christian household, so as we move into this, it's imperative that we understand and come to know how radical this was for that culture. For Paul to say this, this is in light of Christ. This is the culture, but in light of Christ, this is how differently the Christian household will look given that culture and given that time period. So as we move into this, this was, a, this was radical in those days. And this is a call to Christ-likeness and submission to Jesus as the authority over their lives. In fact, as we move into the children aspect, the, pot, the pantra in those days would have had the supreme authority over the family. You see, even millions of children, even in Christian homes, experience a constant reign of criticism. John Newton was a great hymn writer and preacher. He experienced a wretched life before turning to Christ. He said, I know my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me, wish, excuse me. He said, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. And parents and fathers, all of us, discipline is to be given, but so is encouragement. Obedience is to be loved and to be nurtured by love and praise. We must never cause our children to lose heart. We must love them as Christ loved the church. We must sacrifice for them and for their sake. We must be about the flourishing and raising of our children. And this is a call to parents as well. 
We must be about the encouragement and edification of our children. Children, learn obedience early. <laughs> learn obedience early. It'll serve you so much as you go forth, as you even learn, as you grow up, and as you grow into your faith. It will only serve you to grow in your walk with Jesus and walk with God. Ephesians 6 reminds us that children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, and the parents are all here and going to say amen. Amen. Okay. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So as we move forward in the next few verses, um, I just, again, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, don't embitter your children so they will not become discouraged. And so, um, as we move forward in the next few verses, we talk, about the, we talk about the other S word, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, but to curry their favor, but sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. I just want to say, uh, slavery has no place in the kingdom of God, and there have been some atrocities with slavery as it pertains to North American slavery and some grave evils. And some of you might have seen a recent film, perhaps, that came out about child slavery, and that has zero place in the kingdom of God. And I want to say this as well. We talked about there are slaves and masters in the Christian household in Rome. So just kind of want to talk about this. And there are often times that the Bible describes things without prescribing them. So Solomon this merely describes, describes that he had many, many wives, but the Bible is clear in its run-through as to marriage being between one man and one woman. And sometimes the Bible describes things without prescribing them. Slavery does not have a place. And there are grave evils that have happened with that, with slavery in North America and whatnot. The Bible was written in a historical context in a particular time. We read the Bible on its own terms, applicable today, knowing it's written in a time and space. And slavery looked a bit different in the household in those days. Yet we know what Paul is saying here would have been very countercultural and would have dignified this and dignified slavery, dignified the person behind this, and specifically the manner and motive out of obedience that radically dignifies them as brothers and sisters in Christ in the household. He treats them as persons, not tools, and as brothers and sisters, and not as property. The motivation shouldn't be gaining the approval of their masters, but in fearing the Lord. Did you notice in verse 22? But with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. You see, Paul lifts the slave's work from the realm of secular service to the sphere of Christian worship. And we are to work in this manner. They're to work in this manner with their confidence as fellow members of the Lord's household and fellow members and citizens in this kingdom of God, that they will receive from the Lord their inheritance as their reward. For they offer their service not ultimately to men, to others, to people, but to the Lord. And they offer that to the Lord. And we can see this play out in our employee-employer relationships. We work for the Lord, and all the things that we do, we do all things as if they are working for the Lord, whether that's you drive a bus, whether that's if you wash windows, whether that's you work at a bank, whether that's you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, cleaning, leading, you're a cashier, or if you're a student, you do all things for the glory of the Lord. All of it's done to bring glory and honor, and we serve the Lord based from that paradigm. And that 
lastly, in that verse, verse 4, verse 1, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, all under the umbrella of the Christian household, what it means to have the lordship of Christ. Paul says, masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and what is fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. And we all do this because we have a master in heaven. And even that, the, the, as I mentioned, the pontra in that family, he had a role of three things. He, had a, he was a husband, he was a father, and he was also called a master in those days. And he now commands them to treat their slaves justly and fairly, knowing that they have a master in heaven. Sees them as people and not simply other things. He sees them as people. And that's what we are to do as well. And he affirms the lordship of Jesus Christ even in the household setting. You see, here's this main idea. As we walk into relationships, as we walk into even Christian homes, having Christ in our homes, it says this, this main idea. I just want to mention this to you again. All of life, whether family or work, be significant or mundane, is subject to and governed by and lived for the glory of Jesus. All of this done in the context of relationships and the heart of Colossians the heart behind it is to have Jesus be the center and the supreme authority, and that's, that finds itself in our relationships, in the context of relationships with the world around us. And so I just want us to be reminded of that as well. Um, I just want to read to you this last little verse. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Amen? Amen. Amen.